Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. Why is everyone I meet so interested in what time I get up in the morning? Five days to go and the madness begins. Comfort in, dump out is the rule. It's moments like these that remind me the absurdity of my work. Drink a lot of wine, smoke a lot of cigarettes. No wonder that so many girls drop out of sport at puberty. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers, filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in May. Former England cricket captain Mike Brearley was considering whether today's sporting parents are too involved in the careers of their offspring, while actor and writer Sheila Hancock was pondering the life lessons we can learn from a butterfly. Anglican priest Alice Goodman was reflecting on some disastrous experiences at the beginning of her career in the church, while farmer Tom Martin explained how our historic farmyard practice became the subject of a Twitter spat. This month, Gen Zer Alice Garnett has penned an argument against resilience as she reflects on how a difficult year has shaped her life today. Meanwhile, writer and sex worker Tilly Lawless commends the power of roleplay to remind us of the absurdity of life. Sarah Collins, who suffers with obsessive-compulsive disorder, calls for a more honest conversation about premenstrual mental health, while sports journalist Emma John welcomes the England netball team's demand for more research about the female body. But let's begin with farmer Tom Martin, who asks why everyone is so interested in what time he wakes up in the morning. Why is everyone I meet so interested in what time I get up in the morning? Do workers in any other sector excite so much public interest in their waking and sleeping? The assumption, I think, is that I get up at some unimaginable hour, and I feel like I'm disappointing people when I break the news that my alarm goes off at 6.30am and I'm rarely out of the door before 7. Perhaps I should thank my dairy farming colleagues for instilling the idea that farmers are all early birds. They do genuinely wake up in the small hours and complete their first milking before I've even poured the milk in my tea. Perhaps it had stuck because we farmers do have a tendency to complain about the working long hours. Or perhaps it's the culture within farming, one that inextricably links hard work with long hours and sniffs at the modern injunction to work smarter, not harder. I've often heard farmers ask each other, where were you at five this morning? The thinly veiled boast behind this question is, look how hard I work. And psychologists would, I'm sure, say that it comes from the deep search for purpose and assurance. Farming is a business, but it's also an identity and it's all consuming. Early on in my relationship with my then girlfriend and now wife, I told her about my mistress, the farm. It's only right in a modern marriage to have open communication and give fair warning of late nights and weekends lost. As a farmer, my workload is largely sorted into jobs that can be done at any time and then those that require, say, dry weather or low winds. We really can only make hay while the sun shines. Planting seeds, however, can only be done in dry conditions, though we can operate no matter how windy it is. Not so with the sprayer, which requires wind speeds of less than 10 miles an hour to operate safely. Conditions that barely obtained in the month of April this year. Then there are urgent jobs. The sheep that is lambing, or possibly the sheep that is dying, an animal escaping, these all take priority. So with these competing tasks, 
I rarely end the day having completed my to-do list. In fact, the daily list is barely recognisable after a few hours of interference from weather, animals or breakdown, both machinery and human. Important yet non-urgent tasks such as filling in government forms, calling the bank manager, remembering anniversaries or writing my prospect lives entry inevitably slip. And so I have understanding friends who accept that farming jobs can steal my social time, that a break in the weather can trump a beer in the pub, and who are increasingly aware that I have a Saturday job. My Saturday job is that I'm a farmer. And granted, that's the same as my weekday job, but it's worth pointing out that the farm diary runs differently to the diary in most other professions. When asked recently when I'd be free for a meeting, I responded, only slightly in jest, when it next rains. But after all this talk of workload, and in full recognition that I have farming friends and neighbours who haven't taken a day off in months and haven't had a recognisable holiday, perhaps ever, let me tell you about the joys. I often document my delight in observing wildlife, in growing food, in caring for the environment, in seeing the seasons change. But my work sometimes brings an added benefit. The flexibility can allow in certain months for an unexpected midweek trip to the seaside or spending extra time with my nephews or dropping in for a cup of tea with my parents or back in the farmhouse with my understanding wife. It's a different culture and there are ways in which we must modernise, but I love it. And I love sharing it with you, Prospect Reader. I look forward to telling you more, perhaps next time we have a rainy day. Farmer Tom recognises that farming is an identity as well as a job. For Anglican priest Alice Goodman, leading funerals is one of the most rewarding but emotionally challenging aspects of her vocation. The members of the deanery chapter were sitting around the rural dean's kitchen when the talk turned to funerals as it inevitably does after about 20 minutes of every clergy gathering. This vicar and that vicar were discussing what they would and wouldn't permit in their churches. No recorded secular music for the entrance and exit of the coffin. No singing of Jerusalem, not a Christian hymn. No eulogies. Then someone spoke up, the bird-watching vicar of St. Cassian's. Our mother was the church cleaner. Every week she was there with her mop and her duster. She knew every tile of that floor. When she died, we asked the vicar if he would say a few words about how much she loved the church. He said, I don't allow eulogies. So now I give mourners whatever they want and offer it up. For a moment, I enjoyed imagining him uniting his irritation at the boombox at the back of the church, playing My Heart Will Go On, with the suffering of Christ on the cross, asking Jesus to use that tiny affliction for the good of this messed up world. It's an old-fashioned Catholic way of dealing with hurt. Just forward it on to our Lord on the cross. He can bear it. After a while, I stopped being bothered by popular music and sentimental poems. I learned to recognise the presence of God in the readings that comforted my parishioners' children and the music that they loved listening to. It no longer seems strange to process out of church to Johnny Cash singing Tennessee Flat Top Box or the Pet Shop Boys version of Go West. Instead, it's entirely proper and fitting. These are moments when the sacred suffuses the profane. For me, as for many others, ministry to the bereaved takes up a lot of the week. There were two funerals last week, a burial of ashes and three visits to bereaved families this week. 
Everyone in the village can have a funeral in their parish church, and everyone's entitled, if there's room, to be buried in the churchyard. Anyone can ask for their parish priest to lead a service at the creme or at the graveside. So while many people are opting for a humanist celebrant these days, and the market for direct cremations is growing, I'm still called upon to do a lot more funerals than weddings or baptisms. This is why clergy always wind up talking funerals. We don't generally have anyone else to talk to who understands what it's like. It's humbling to sit down with someone and listen as they tell you about this person whose life they've shared. You remember their names and stories. In fact, you become a treasury of people's stories. You apply your intelligence and your imagination to give an account of those lives in relation to the eternal. You remember that every person's life is to some degree a mystery, even to someone who shares their pillow, and that God only knows what's in someone's head when they lie awake at night. You gradually learn something about how to comfort the numb and the brokenhearted. You learn that it's generally wise not to go on to the wake. This is because after you've dropped your handful of earth on the coffin, with the triple rhythm, with the triple rhythm of earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, or walk through the exit door at the creme, you realize that you're drained. This is one of the things that we clergy don't talk about at our deanery chapters. What do we do with all the grief we take in? Ring theory is the name of the strategy I was taught for dealing with the stresses of pastoral care. Imagine a set of concentric circles. In the middle is someone dying or newly bereaved. Family members, friends, colleagues, and neighbors occupy the other circles by degree of closeness. The rule is, that the people further towards the centre receive only comfort. Your negative feelings get passed outwards towards the perimeter. Comfort in, dump out is the rule. Guess what? We're usually at the furthest remove. The priest at a wedding is an essentially comic character, a cross between the nurse and Friar Lawrence and Romeo and Juliet. The priest at a funeral has no margin for error. And the priest who does every funeral in the same board, sing-song, slotting names, locations, and places of work into a generic address is a disgrace, or possibly someone who has walled off their own grief. When we're together, we talk about the size of the coffin and the color of the plumes on the horses pulling the hearse. We compare notes about music and undertakers. But what should we really be talking about? I'd like to hear what my colleagues do when they get home from a funeral. On to the next thing, make a cup of tea, go for a walk, comfort in, dump out. Where to dump it? Offer it up. While Alice Goodman reflects on what it's like to support someone suffering a loss, Gen Zer Alice Garnett considers the expectations that come with being a victim. You're so resilient, a compliment generously delivered to me by my manager at my new job. 
following a traumatic event that had resulted in a three-day absence. This well-meaning sentiment would later haunt me. I was not resilient in the months following that tearful conversation, one that took place in a meeting room with big windows as I did my best to remain composed while my new colleagues went about their morning business. Just over a year ago, I was assaulted. I had been on a night out which began in a random pub in King's Cross and after a brief but traumatic interlude in Leicester Square concluded in Charing Cross Police Station. I took just two days off, worked from home for a day, then re-immersed myself in office culture, making small talk with my co-workers about their weekends, signing off emails, all the best, Alice, and such like. I was just 10 days in and wanted to be as accommodating as possible. At the end of the same month, I was unceremoniously dumped by my boyfriend of 18 months via FaceTime. Something about not being able to make me happy. So one of my best friends, Emmeline, returned home one evening to find me crying in the flat we shared. It had only been a few weeks since I'd crawled into her bed at 6am, having been shipped home in the back of a police car. One month later, the police called to let me know that, for want of evidence, they could no longer pursue my case. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. I could no longer muster the strength required to keep going about my daily life. I couldn't continue riding the central line to work with my Tupperware filled with salad as though nothing terrible had happened. I went to bed for a month. When I wasn't in bed, I was with friends, getting coffee, having drinks, not bettering myself or healing with meal plans, yoga or books. And so guilt trailed after me from one activity to the next because having fun felt like the wrong thing to do. I thought I should either be depressed validating the reasons I was signed off from work or actively processing trauma so as to move on and transform into the better person victims allegedly become through their suffering. Instead, between bouts of social interaction, I was bundled up, safely tucked away from the world, asleep or watching TV. Throughout last summer, I was a victim. I felt the word burrow deeper and deeper into the core of my personhood each time the police used the phrase victim of crime. Like any label, victim is not without its responsibilities. People will always expect you to cope and to grieve within preordained, socially acceptable parameters in such a way that it doesn't disrupt or inconvenience those around you. The idealised narrative of victimhood often goes... They achieved X in spite of Y. They raised a record amount of money for charity in spite of having a terminal illness. She rose to the top of her career despite dealing with workplace misogyny at every juncture. He achieved a first-class degree even after enduring multiple mental health crises. We use adversity as a measure for success. Your achievement is multiplied by the value of your suffering. Thus, victimhood becomes an opportunity, something to be overcome so you can prove how brave, strong and resourceful you truly are. To succumb to victimhood, on the other hand, is to fail. 
I was not an inspiration. I was not to be commended for my strength. And I did not achieve X all in spite of Y. Of course, phrases like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and the victim turned hero narrative exists to inspire hope and grant survivors agency. But it's not helpful to insist every personal disaster is a learning opportunity. It's okay not to deal with exceptional circumstances in exceptional ways. Sometimes life is just a bit shit and we deal with that shit in shitty ways. Sometimes being alive and still standing at the end of it all is the achievement. So give yourself permission to be a mess. Life can wait. You'd be surprised by how much things can get better even when you're not actively pursuing it through self-improvement books and courses. Drink a lot of wine, smoke a lot of cigarettes and complain about how awful things are to your best friends. Cry a lot, miss work, get angry, be upset. You don't owe anyone bravery and I certainly don't owe anyone resilience. While Alice Garnett gives her readers permission to be chaotic, Writer and sex worker Tilly Lawless revels in how roleplay can reignite joy in difficult times. I'm making out with a friend of mine on a client's bed while he lies and watches us. We're not pretending that he isn't there. He's not part of the roleplay. And he stays silent as we faux flirt and prevaricate and go so deep into the lore of the characters we've created that we're eating well into the four hours he's paid for. We're both in our 30s, but for this we're back in our late teens, Two girls eager and tentative with the back and forth of, do you like that? Are you sure? Does that feel okay? I mean, I want to, but only if you want to. Oh my God, that's not like too much, is it? That only two girls can have. For this scenario, I'm a uni student who is bi-curious and has invited her bisexual friend round in the unspoken hope they may get together under the guise of dress-ups and other frivolous games. I told her that a girl kissed me when I was out at a party the other night. But I'm not sure if I liked it because I was on MDMA. It might have just been the drugs. I think I need to try it when I'm sober. And I let the sentence hang in the air, reveling in the creation of play tension that has none of the anxiety, but all of the anticipation of real life tension. More fun than any actual seduction is at that age of fumbling uncertainty. She suggests we kiss to just test it, you know. And once we begin with the stops and starts and the darting hands that pause suddenly unsure, She says, this is like that scene in Cruel Intentions. And I say, oh my God, the one with Selma Blair and who is it? And we throw actresses' names between us for a while as we kiss until there's a sudden grumble from the corner of the bed that we've forgotten about. Sarah Michelle Gellar, he says gruffly, an offstage prompt that breaks down the fourth wall and makes us giggle even more than we were already. I've always liked roleplay bookings partly because ad-lib comes naturally to me and I enjoy the synergy with another person when we're bouncing off each other. It makes sex like a game and a challenge and to me that's the joy of it. I've never been able to stand the serious sex scenes you get in romantic movies or, sometimes, in the bed of an incredibly earnest and well-meaning lesbian because to me, bodies are bizarre and sex is all about laughter. My two longest-running regular clients, both of whom I've been seeing for seven years, are roleplay regs. In the time I've been working with them, I've played countless roles in countless scenarios, from mummy nursing her growing boy 
to porn director interviewing a prospective star and teen girl who claims that she'll be an entrepreneur like Kylie Jenner. Sometimes clients tell me, let's role play that we're in a loving romantic relationship, tenderly make love to me and whisper I love you in my ear. Often, I'm riffing off whatever text instructions I could memorise in the time it takes me to ride the elevator upstairs. And it's moments like these, on the bed with my friend, that remind me the absurdity of my work, an absurdity that I lean into through the ups and downs of life, because life is, after all, absurd and weird and unexpected and hilarious and overwhelming, and you've got to laugh or otherwise you'll cry. I recently lost someone important to me, and sometimes it can feel wrong and incomprehensible that life keeps going, and when you think the world should stop in sorrow, or cease to exist because they have ceased to exist. But it keeps rolling on, and you've got to roll with it. It's in this mood of can't believe she's gone, can't believe she's dead, can't believe I have to live years of my life stretching ahead of me without her, that I begin to lean harder into roleplay bookings, and even to suggest them to clients. They're ludicrous and they're something I can disappear into and I can be someone in them who isn't grieving but is boisterous and horny and effervescent. After the break, we'll hear more from our Family of Lives columnists. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, then we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. For Sarah Collins, who suffers with OCD, her hormones play a defining role in how she manages her mental health. Five days to go and the madness begins. I'm with my team at a weekly beginners football league and we're discussing our positions for the next game. Suddenly, I have the strange sensation that I'm watching myself from the outside, like a critic sitting in the audience for a play of my life. I usually play in midfield, I hear myself say to the group of women. Why on earth did you say that? The critic chastises me. How obnoxious to put yourself forward like that. As I walk to the middle of the field, the critic continues that tirade. It's so embarrassing that you assume these women liked you. It's obvious now that they find you incredibly annoying. It's rather difficult to focus on the ball with the critic on blast, and I fumble an easy pass. It doesn't take me long to work out what's happening. My critic and I have been here many times before. To be precise, we meet once a month in the week preceding my period. During that week, the modicum of stability that I've achieved for the rest of the month disappears. Weeks of deep breathing exercises, mindful walks and daily three-minute jogs. I refuse as a matter of principle to run for more than the minimum amount of time required to give me an endorphin hit. All fly out the window. What emerges is a constant barrage of criticism, anxiety and self-doubt that leaves me reeling. Unfortunately, the critic also turns their eye towards those closest to me. During a recent lunch at a restaurant with my mum, I began policing her perfectly polite interactions with the waiter. She had what I felt at the time to be an unreasonable desire to inform him that she had a nut allergy. Why are you being so socially abrasive? I demanded. She responded with a much gentler wording of the question, Why are you being so mental? I paused for a moment to consider what to say next. My period starts in a few days. Oh, of course. There was no further explanation needed. My family have been on the roller coaster with me since I was a teenager. My premenstrual critic can be a source of anecdotes, but the reality of living with them can also be incredibly dark. For a week every month, my obsessive thinking ratchets up to a fever pitch and a wave of despair threatens to bowl me over. I have to muster my strength to carry out the basic tasks I otherwise do on autopilot. Getting out of bed, making meals and putting a wash on are overwhelming. 
I no longer have the motivation to pick up the tools that help me manage my OCD. They lie loosely on the floor as I slip back into old behaviours, spending hours pacing around my room ruminating on problems I've created in my mind. Several people I love have told me that they suspect I experience something more serious than the already unpleasant premenstrual syndrome that the majority of women and other people who have periods face. They have asked whether I may have a condition called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which includes symptoms such as depression, increased anxiety, sleeping problems and severe mood swings. PMDD affects between 3 and 8% of us and more than 30% of those diagnosed with PMDT will attempt suicide. My answer to their question is, I don't know, I've never sought a diagnosis because frankly, who wants another one? But I have started to implement strategies that include carefully tracking my cycle and warning others that I'm likely to be oversensitive. Perhaps the other reason I've resisted investigating a medical approach is the fear my emotions will be explained away by my hormones if they're labelled as clinical. It wasn't so long ago that women were excluded from the workplace due to their cycles and labelled too hysterical to be trusted. In response, we have kept stuck. Admitting that my hormones are wreaking havoc with my mental health feels like admitting weakness. Or worse, handing over a weapon to those who still believe women are fundamentally less emotionally stable than men. But this stoicism precludes the opportunity for more research and support for those dealing with hormonal mood changes. Unmasking the turmoil for a quarter of my life does take a toll. Research suggests that effective interventions for premenstrual symptoms can include educating male partners about them. Perhaps a more open conversation about mental health and the menstrual cycle could be helpful to everyone, whether they have periods or not. And let's begin with retiring the phrase, it's just your hormones, forever. While Sarah Collins calls for a more open conversation about the menstrual cycle and the mind, Emma John would like to better understand how exercise affects the female body. Netball is the only sport I was any good at as a child, and even then my athletic career peaked in primary school. But I brought a certain spaniel energy to the position of wing attack, And my tendency to get overlooked by the taller opposition defenders meant I perfected the possibly unprecedented strategy of hiding behind them before bursting out to steal the ball mid-pass. These days, I indulge my fondness for the game by watching the England Roses compete for the highest of honours. They are currently training for July's World Cup in South Africa. And while they have long had my fealty... This summer, they have won my heart before even stepping onto the court. While so many professional sports teams would be using the build-up to their flagship tournament to ally with betting companies, alcohol sponsors and official fast food vendors, England's netballers are using their temporarily elevated profile to promote women's health and break taboos. Their captain, Natalie Metcalf, is keen to speak up about pelvic health. Their goal defence, Fran Williams, wants to discuss the effect of contraception on training cycles. Ellie Cardwell, who describes herself as a bigger busted player, is using her social media channels to highlight the importance of well-fitting sports bras. Their efforts are part of Netball Her, a nationwide campaign that England Netball launched in April. Its purpose is to educate people from the recreational to professional level of the sport about female bodies. There's a myth-busting website curated by performance expert Emma Ross, 
GB rower turned coach Baz Moffat and GP Bella Smith, which demystifies issues from prenatal and postnatal training to menstrual cycles and the menopause. And there's systemic investment too, with development courses for coaches, officials and volunteers. Just as significant is the organisation's call for more research in female-focused sports science, a field that remains woefully neglected. Only 6% of academic papers in sports science relate specifically to women, and recently the British Medical Journal identified distinct knowledge gaps in the relationship between women's health and physical activity, including cardiovascular, musculoskeletal and postpartum physiology. In December, an article in Nature argued that the overwhelming bias towards males in sports science was impeding progress in the prevention and treatment of female athletes' injuries. As the top teams in women's sports push for gender equality in both, at elite and grassroots levels, boosting participation, the problem can only become more urgent. The other major World Cup taking place in July is in women's football – a sport where potentially career-ending ACL injuries are increasingly prevalent. England's team have already lost their captain, Leah Williamson, to such a tear in the knee ligament. She was the fourth Arsenal player to damage her ACL in six months. The fact that women are between six and eight times more likely to suffer such tears than men has not yet produced a fix for how to avoid them. It is thought that the relative width of female athletes' pelvises sends more stress through their knees, but the training and advice women receive continues to be built on male-based science and experience. What I find heartening and ultimately vital about the efforts to address this bias is the intention to change the way that women think and feel about our bodies. Some of the statistics from the Netball Her campaign are as unsurprising as they are significant. More than a third of girls say they avoid school sports activities when they have their period, while almost 9 in 10 female athletes say that their menstrual cycles impact upon their performance. Yet fewer than 1 in 5 British women have received any education about their menstrual cycle in relation to exercise and training. No wonder that so many girls drop out of sport at puberty. Or that so many women, be we occasional Sunday runners or committed gym bunnies, hit up against the mental and physical barriers that tell us we're just not a sporty person. We're used to accepting monthly pain and mood fluctuations. And for millennia, the presiding message has been that these are limitations that we must simply put up with. Educating society and educating ourselves about the female body is the first step to understanding what it's truly capable of. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in July and tune into our regular podcast, the Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, then escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstands now. Or go to our website, where you can feed writing from David Aranovich, Sarah Manavis, Jen Stout, and many more. Hope to see you next time.